Hello, this is Timothy Allen and welcome to episode two of my podcast. On today's episode, I sit down and talk with an old friend and colleague of mine by the name of Amy Christian. Now, Amy and myself originally worked together many, many years ago when she was uh, in-house staff at Oxfam and I joined forces with her on a number of jobs creating content in various strange corners of the globe. And I think traveling to strange corners of the globe is something that's ended up defining the whole of Amy's life. And that's what we spend most of our time talking about on this podcast. In particular, her time at Oxfam. She spent three years living a couple of hours away from Mosul in Iraq. And she recounts many of her experiences there. Notably, the horrendous time she spent trying to publicize the oil fire disaster that was happening in Giara, near to where she was living. You may actually remember seeing this story in the news. These were the vast oil fires set alight by retreating ISIS fighters. We also discuss Amy's current job at UNICEF, where she acts as the liaison between UNICEF and all the social media networks. And as such, she has a fascinating insight into the inner workings of the networks. In particular, we talk about the problem of fake news and also censorship and what the social media networks are doing about that. I hope you enjoy the podcast. It's been great sitting down and talking to Amy after such a long time. Don't forget to check out my previous episode and look out for new episodes on a Friday afternoon. And in the meantime, enjoy my conversation with Amy Christian. Thank you. I, I've known you since, well, quite long. Was it 2011, 10? I think. Was Maybe it? 10. But I think the first trip we did together was, well, yeah, was Pakistan in 2011. Right. So me and Amy worked together at Oxfam. Amy, what was your job title at Oxfam? Well, I had many job titles, but essentially um, a commissioning editor worked on the picture desk and commissioned photographers and then went on to be a producer, producing videos and content essentially of Oxfam's work. But you were, the, the impression I got is that you were all, you were really acting as journalists because you would come away with an idea, like you did the production before you left, you would come away looking for to collect the content that you decided you already needed. Yeah, they, it was it was kind of like we knew. So we went. We we needed to cover Oxfam's. My my job was to cover the story of Oxfam's work and the story of the people that Oxfam worked with, and to commission photographers and filmmakers to work with me to do that. So yes, I produced the trip before we left and um, kind of had the bones of the story. You know, I knew, but often you'd arrive and it wasn't actually you know what you thought it was going to be. And um, and I always I think it's always good to leave room. For for um for change and to sort of roll with the punches so to speak because often you arrive somewhere and there's actually a much more interesting story to tell so yeah I guess I guess working with journalists and myself I acted as a sort of journal in-house journalist for Oxfam yeah, yeah I, well that was the impression I got and can you remember where we went well that's a good question. Somebody, I was trying to tell somebody the other day how we knew each other, and it was near Karachi. I know we flew into Karachi, and then wasn't it? 
I'm going to say this wrong. Was it to do with the floods? Yes, sorry. So it was to do with the floods, the floods, uh, 2011. And was it after I went the first time? Yeah, so you'd already been the first time and I think you'd met families in a camp. Shabazz refugee camp, that's right, in Sindh. Sindh. We went to Sindh, that was it, right. So it was a follow-up trip and we were just training content gathering. And it's, it's probably worth mentioning that this, you know, these kind of trips were... Are they still common? Yeah, they're not. I think they're not as common as they used as. I mean, when there's an emergency, definitely um, there are trips commissioned. Um, and I think these there's there's definitely been a, a bit of a, a kind of a move to collect content by m- local teams more and more, which I think is a really positive um, move within the sector. Um, but yeah, they do still happen. And but so uh, our task essentially was to. Do you know, I've just re- remembered something. We were making a really weird... Um, wasn't there like a... We did a lot of weird things. I know, it trip. wasn't... But, but I can, I've got this vague recollection that we, ha- we, th- we were creating a map. No, yes. we were creating a web page oh, with yes. all the different things. Your okay. memory's really good. No, it's, come, it's starting to come back to me now as we're talking. Yeah, um, that's right. But but it was it was. I mean, what what's interesting about it is we were we were trying to understand how we could promote the work Oxfam were doing in Sindh in the internet age, and and this is something like I've just before you were talking with Elia Lacardi about roughly the same thing. It's like. We've lived through the, this move from analog to digital. I've certainly mm. even lived from the very beginning of it to now. And as we've gone along, we're trying to work out how this all works because, mm. you know, Oxfam were the first people that did the whole kind of, you know, give a man a fish, yeah, give a man a a, a rod thing. Yeah. And that was teach a big... Teach a man to fish. Teach yeah. a man to fish, right. <laughs> and that was a big deal, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was a really big deal. Like this kind of movement from giving somebody food to actually like helping them grow their own food or like produce their own food so that they they it's, it's more longer terms uh it's more sustainable in the longer term but the but the even the idea that it during that age yeah it was kind of like tv ads and, and newspapers and yeah. now it's however you can reach well now it's more i mean so when when I, back in 2011 which was i guess my second year at oxfam you know we weren't thinking necessarily in terms of social media necessarily like our primary objective was to gather content for like what we call um mail packs which went were delivered in by post to people and you know can you please donate five pounds or ten pounds or something which i still get by the way yeah not from oxfam necessarily but it's amazing they still do they're still very effective actually um so yeah they they actually still um produce produce quite a lot of revenue uh, interestingly um especially i think um older donors prefer to donate like that and i and i think that it, during my time at oxfam we went through this kind of phase of like trying to experiment on how you get how you can try and get people to donate online and through social mm. media it was a very new space at, at that time so it was really interesting and and film was becoming so much more important like video because when I first started, it was all about photography. And photography, I, I mean, we were talking about this the other day, but photographs are more versatile in a sense for an organisation like Oxfam because you can use them on a web page, on social media, in a mail pack. You can pitch them to media, etc., for newspapers, etc. But 
video was sort of coming into play and we were all like oh yeah, I guess we better start thinking about video and when we were on that trip we were doing all these time lapses so we as you say we had this web it's all come back to me now we had this web page and then the idea was that you could click on different villages and see like a time lapse of a well-being uh, that's right made. Yeah. yeah I remember now or yeah. like a toilet and so yeah did that ever get it's very happen? glamorous? Did job. that ever happen? <laughs> like uh, yeah, what happened? No, it in did happen. I'm not it even did sure happen. I saw the content. Yeah, it. no, it did happen. And they also, it was actually one of my favourite mail packs, actually, because they also made this fold out um, insert in the mail pack that had the same map on it, and then pictures and quotes from people, and the pictures of them of the wells or the. Um, toilets etc that were being built so well that's interesting then so that was an experimental thing yeah yeah so what, what what's going on now then like what what's what's like how i mean how are people reaching out you still work in i should probably run a, actually let, before we do that let's let's do it in the right timeline yeah so you you worked at oxfam yeah. and then you ended up in iraq yeah, so I, I, I worked at Foxfam in total for uh, 10 years. Um, in the UK? No, well, I did I, I did six and a half years in the UK and, and then two and a half, three years in Iraq, basically. Uh, so, yeah, I, with Oxfam as well. So I, I kind of moved. I, 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 the progression of my career, like, yeah, I was in H, H, head office and I was traveling a lot to different places, but I kind of got to this point where... I felt like I really just wanted to get to the bones of a story in a lot more depth and really understand something, mm, yeah, in more depth than I than I than I was able to by just flying in and out of places. And um, did, and did you do you apply for a job in Iraq? Do you yeah, answer well, a job interview? It's a really funny story, actually. Um, so I'd I'd kind of been working on the Syria crisis for quite a while, and um, I was like the lead content person for Syria. But I'd never been to Syria. I'd been to Jordan and and uh, Lebanon many times to meet refugees from Syria and also um, in Europe as well. And it was like I was determined that I'd, I just really kind of fell in love with the Middle East, I suppose. And I was really um, passionate about the Syria crisis and what was happening to people that were fleeing from Syria. So anyway, I, tr- I, tr- I tried to apply for any job that within Oxfam I tried to apply to go to Lebanon to work or to Jordan and also applied to go to Yemen and and every time they said oh no you can't have the job because you don't speak Arabic and I was like oh no I'm never going to learn Arabic quick enough to like get a job where I want and then um a friend of mine actually who bizarrely I met in Vanuatu we ended up on this crazy trip in Vanuatu he's he was the head of um humanitarian at um Oxfam America and he came back we used to sometimes like you know go for coffee if he was in Oxford and he said I've just got back from Iraq and the program's excellent you have to go there so I said to my manager what does that mean though the program's excellent does that well he was I mean does that mean it's it's achieving a lot yeah like he was saying like you know the work they're doing is is um really effective and it's really interesting there's like a lot going on there and you know our program in Iraq up until um, ISIS sort of came along um, had been very small it had been a very small program we didn't really work there um, in a in a big way and then the uh, crisis happened with ISIS and the displacement um, of lots of people from different parts of Iraq and we grew the program but actually what was really interesting is that even within Oxfam 
uh, at head office, people didn't really even know that we worked there. It was like this, I didn't know until I, I met up with uh, Nahuel that we even worked in Iraq. But isn't, I mean, isn't the Iraq situation, isn't that a crisis situation? Do it, you not go to wars? Does Oxfam not normally go to wars then? Is it more like um, earthquakes and, you know, all that kind of stuff? No, they do go, they do go to wars. But the, the, we, Oxfam, the way it works is that Oxfam would go where there's a need. So like some sometimes countries can manage their own um, response um, or there's many actors already responding so we assess the needs on the ground and and often if we're not working in a country already it's quite a different thing to set up a new program than if you're already working in a country and you can just um, scale up the program and respond much more easily so it might be that it's it's better for us to put our resources into other crises or respond to the Iraq crisis with refugees that have gone to a country that we're already working in for example um, but they did decide to scale up the program um, but we weren't really talking about it and nobody really knew about it so I, I kind of came back from this dinner and said look I, th- I think we should go I, I'd like to go and I think people were a little bit like reticent. They were a little bit nervous about me going. They were like, oh, do you think that people will donate to Iraq? Like, okay, fine, you can go. So, so I, I went and I went with uh, Tommy Trenchard and Pablo Tosco. And Who we, so uh, Tommy Trenchard's a photographer that I worked with in uh, Liberia and Sierra Leone um, on the Ebola crisis. And um, he'd previously done some work in Ukraine. So I knew that he'd like got this kind of like, um, history of working in similar conflict zones and um, in difficult situations he worked like non-stop on Ebola for like something like two years without a day off so he was very like tough in terms of like the context that he was <laughs> willing to go to and then Pablo Tosco uh, is a filmmaker who uh, works for Oxfam Intamon so Oxfam Spain um, so three of us went with and so there, there, were, there was a job there for you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah we yeah. went because we we knew that we well I was convinced that you know I knew that there was incredible work happening there was a crisis happening and I did I covered humanitarian uh content gathering so yeah anyway we decided after many meetings we decided it would be a good idea to go and we particularly wanted to see the work that Oxfam was doing with displaced like people that had been displaced from Mosul and um that we're sort of in camps in northern Iraq and like displaced into other villages and um we went and we ended up staying there for about three and a half weeks there was just so much to see and so many stories like we were like everybody you meet has a story everybody has a story here and the work was just you know I'd never seen work like that before you know describe that what do you mean well we were go Oxfam was at the forefront of the crisis they were going to places that other people weren't going to and working in areas that other agencies weren't working in and um i i felt like it was it was you know like what 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 like what were the kind of common things that you were supporting out there for example like you know what- yeah okay so <clears throat> for example i mean the classic humanitarian similar to what we saw in Pakistan I suppose like so you know okay a village um, receives a lot of people displaced from another village up the road because ISIS has taken over so it's hard to explain but I suppose the conflict lines are like kind of 
they change a lot they're quite fluid and you could be in this village here and go on the roof of a house and look over there in the next village and that's an ISIS village but this village isn't so what happens is when ISIS come and they take over that village people flee and they come to the next village but what that means is these tiny villages suddenly have an influx of people and they can't really cope with it they don't have like the resources to cope with so many people living in, in, in that area. So we would go in and provide anything that they needed, really, I suppose, any basic things. So like we would water, help them get water. So that could be water tanks or it could be that we would help um, rehabilitate a local water supply working with the local council, for example. Because um, the thing is as well in a conflict, things get damaged very easily you know water systems get completely damaged when there's bombs going off and bullets flying everywhere so um, we would go in and repair things and help make sure that people had water it gets very hot in Iraq it's like 45 50 degrees in the wind in summer we would provide food vouchers we would provide um what we call hygiene kits which have like basic supplies of like soap toothbrushes things like that that people don't have when they flee from their homes winter clothes because it gets very cold in the winter you know it's hot in the summer cold in the winter so like hat scarf gloves jumpers that kind of thing um so like really quite varied work but like lots to do lots that you can kind of like cover in terms of stories when you're there interestingly as well like in bigger towns where there's like markets Oxfam was um helping um shop owners to like rehabilitate their their store their stores and like helping them get back into business because like ISIS would just burn everything down like you know and is it is it dangerous for you when you're there like did you have any hairy situation how long were you there for three years I was there for three years yeah like, is it hairy? Do you get shot at, <laughs> bombed? I mean, I mean without <laughs> without giving too much away, because yeah. no one listening can hear, can see you. But you're, I would call you a girly girl. <laughs> yeah. You're not like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it, 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 so I often get funny looks. I live in New York now and people when, you know, I don't know if I'm on a date or if I meet someone <laughs> new and they're like, oh, so where were you? Did you move from the UK to New York? I'm like, oh, no, I moved from Iraq. I was like in Iraq. I do get some funny looks sometimes. But um, yeah, so, I'm actually I mean, quite tough, though, to be honest with you. Like I I can withstand quite a lot. And um, But what about the actual physical danger then? Is it, What is, I mean, did you have anything happen to you? I didn't have anything. I, I never had any injuries or anything, but I definitely knew people that did. And I mean, it is, I'm not, you know, I can't lie and say, oh, there's never any, you know, scary moments or any issues. Yeah, of course, you're in a war zone. And like I say, sometimes you're working somewhere and you can, you're like, you all you hear all day long are like bombs going off and like bullets and you're, but it's over there, you know, and you've got like this line between you and, um and you you had you know Oxfam is is diligent with safety as you you know when you get to somewhere you're like there's all these protocols like in Pakistan we couldn't leave our guest house because it was you know our safety of the staff is like their primary concern sometimes the point of frustration for like people like us that are trying to you know cover stories and they're often in like well we did hairy places we did get we we convinced (laughs) them to drive us at night didn't they oh yeah that's it yeah that was the whole point there was me being a an idiot saying i need i need the golden light i need yeah, the good that's light that's often I, an issue because you need to travel early <laughs> yeah. yeah or no or late coming home or late, late. Yeah, yeah 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 sorry yeah but but yeah i mean the other one i remember when 
I was going to go to uh, Mogadishu to shoot that ad campaign yeah, yeah. on the beach. We were going to have a surfer on the a beach. A surfer on a beach, yeah, for an advocacy campaign about, yeah. And yeah, and it, once again, it was like two days before we went, a guy on the ground said, no, look, the whoever it was, rebels, were lifting yeah. people from the air, airport. Yeah, yeah. I think someone actually got lifted from the airport and kidnapped because there was that whole kidnapping thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so, so we couldn't go. We didn't go. No. It was a sh- I would have still gone. I, I didn't, I, I don't know. I, it, it, you'd need a certain amount of foolhardiness to do this job. Are you like yeah, me? You, you kind of, you grew up thinking everything's going to be all right. And and, and you take that into that situation. And you yeah. Co- yeah, I suppose you do. I, I have like a positive outlook on, on life. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fool when I'm in these places. I know what's going on and I listen to people and, you know, I'm not going to take risks that are going to, I don't want to lose my legs. I don't want to put myself in danger um, to the point where my life is at risk. But obviously it is always it is always there, it's present. And a lot of my friends in Iraq were journalists and they were, you know, in much hairier situations than me because they were like traveling with the Iraqi forces and, you know, putting their lives at risk every day. Um, my friend Josh was blown up in a house, you know, he, he survived, but he was, you know, in Mosul on the front lines and um, well, a suicide. Claire, who we, is that how you know Claire? So I know Claire from Iraq, yeah, we met in Iraq. Claire, we're talking about is, what's Claire's surname? Claire Thomas. Claire Thomas, who's a Welsh photographer. Yeah. Who was working in Mosul shooting, well. Covering the conflict with ISIS, essentially. And yeah, traveling to the front lines and then also working with a, a medical team like in these, like what they call field clinics, which are like makeshift clinics on the on the just behind the front line. And so, Oxfam was also working in those clinics as well. So, yeah. I mean, how many women were working in, like, you know, on in these situations? Quite a lot. I think that, you know, it, it, there were there were quite a lot of women in, in Iraq, actually. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not... I mean, of course, I think there are definitely more men, definitely more men, but you'd be surprised at how many um, women are there as well. Um and I, th- I mean, it's a, it's cheesy to say, but it you often think of in photography, war photography was is always a sort of male dominated realm. Yeah. But you know, she doesn't strike me as the kind of woman that would go to a place like that either. She's very well dressed. Yeah, well, seems I- love. She likes horses <laughs> and she likes riding and doing all this stuff. And there she is, like spending how long was she there? Yeah, for? I mean, Claire's very very tough. She was there for a similar amount of time. She arrived in Iraq after me, but left after me. So three years again, she did. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, you know, Erbil is... So we lived in Erbil, which is the capital of Kurdistan in northern Iraq. And it's a, it's a, it's a safe place. Like, there's no curfews. There's bars. There's restaurants. You can have a relative, live a relatively um, normal life. Um, you can... Uh, we, I lived in my own apartment with a couple of friends. Um, but, there's no... Yeah. And running, you know, the Oxfam office was there, presumably, as well. Yeah, so the Oxfam office was in Erbil as well. But then, you know, you, you then get in a car and you drive, I mean, now it's probably only about an hour, an hour and a half to Mosul. But at the time, you know, depending on the t- stage of the conflict, it would take a different amount of time. But And then you're, like, right in the midst of what's going on. And that's um, what that's something I've always found fascinating about um, dramatic situations like that. I've been in a few war zones myself. Yeah. And 
it's very true mm. that even streets away from something, yeah, it can be completely different. I remember as well, you know, in, in the context of when I was working in London, when um, when the bombs went off in uh, one of the squares in West London, I forget which one it was. It was a bomb. The bombs on a bus. It was a, oh, ma- yeah, it was a huge thing, tube, yeah. and literally. With on the next street, mm. life cafe life was happening. Yeah, you know, and in in northeast India, I travelled through through war zones there, and it's the same. Yeah, you it is surprising, and yeah. I think it's something that a lot of people don't have a concept of because you have to actually be in the situation to know to know it's an actual thing. Yeah, it's like people. I think it really um, opened the eyes of like people that I knew back home who weren't in this sector, who didn't work in humanity, in aid, in the aid sector or weren't journalists. Like even my mum was like, what, you're going to Iraq? And like, my mum actually ended up coming to visit me in Iraq. On my mum's like, my mum's now 78. I guess she was about 75 at the time. And she came on holiday to Iraq to visit me. Cause, and after that she, and she was brilliant. Everyone loved her. Everyone's like, Amy's mum's in Iraq. This is so random. But um <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's where I get it from. So maybe my mum's just like, yeah, okay. What I'll did come. your mum do? What was your mum's profession? My mum was a phlebotomist, so she used to, a like what? a phlebotomist, no which such is thing. yes, What's it's a phlebotomist. <laughs> it's the technical term for a, a nurse that takes your blood. So she worked in a blood clinic. Um, but I mean, so my granddad, my mum's mum, my mum's mum, my mum's dad was in the RAF. And so when my mum was young, they lived all over the world. And um, so she, you know, my, my family's quite a big military family, I would say. You know, my brother is in the army. My dad was in the RAF. My stepdad was in the Navy. My granddad, loads of my cousins, etc. And uh, so she's kind of like lived in lots of different places and my mum will just do anything really to be honest with you she's like very open and um adventurous um and I kept saying to her look you should come to Iraq and I'm sure that on some level she probably was a little bit nervous to be honest but she also trusts me and um the crazy thing about Erbil is well not crazy but it seems crazy I know to other people is that you can just turn up you book a flight you arrive in Erbil and you get a two-week tourist visa so anyone can turn up and then it's quite easy if you want to stay as a journalist to like apply for a residency and Mosul was only a two-hour drive yeah and And Mosul was one of those towns that looked like Armageddon yeah I mean it was to be honest it was like so Mosul is Iraq's second largest city um and was sort of HQ for ISIS in Iraq and um, like the Al-Nuri mosque is like the famous mosque um, that everyone, you know, which it's been in the news again recently. But um, yeah, it, it was, I think it was the second, after the Second World War, it's fiercest like battle um, that's that's been ever, yeah, yeah, ever yeah. fought. Well, it, it, it certainly had notoriety within the journalistic. Yeah. I mean, um, it was brutal. Yeah. I mean, the streets were decimated because in the old city of Mosul, which, so they, they, they kind of like, when they wanted to, when they decided to take back Mosul, it was very interesting actually being there throughout. So I went in August 2016 and the battle for Mosul started in October, I believe. Um, hope I'm remembering these facts right. Um, so we went in August and the whole, the, for like a couple of months, it was like, or more, it was like planning how we're going to do this. And the worst case scenario is a million people are going to get displaced. How are we going to manage this as a community? So what I, I guess I should explain that NGOs like Oxfam, Save the Children, etc., work together um, with the UN 
and coordinate how we're going to respond to these crises. When we know they're going to happen, it's like we actually have a chance to prepare, build camps. How are we going to deal with who's going to do what in each camp? How are we going to do this? Get the money in, get everything prepared, get the staff in place. So that was really what we were doing for a long time. How does that work with giving away intel to the other side? I mean... So you're saying that you kind of knew what was about to happen? Yeah, I mean, they knew, I guess, that they, you know, there was this, that the Iraqi army wanted to take back Mosul. They were gradually moving through Iraq, taking back different places. And um, it was like no big secret, essentially. But obviously, there's only so much that we're told that the Iraqi government is telling the, the you know, the uh, NGO community, but enough for us to prepare um, but then we didn't, you know, we, 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 the worst case scenario ended up happening. A million people were displaced, but actually it, we were concerned that that, w- that we weren't going to be able to cope with it in some ways. I remember like, yeah, you know, certainly in, in our office, we were like, wow, that would just be so devastating. I don't know how the, there's not enough room in the camps, but it was quite methodical. So they, they sort of, um, the army would move up towards Mosul. So it was like 60 kilometers south of Mosul. Gayara was the first place that um, that I really worked on the ground for the in, in that kind of process of the Mosul being retaken. And they would methodically move from one village to the next, passing through, handing back the villages to uh, the, 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 the residents. So they'd go in, fight ISIS, take back the village and as that was happening civilians would flee across the across the lines and go be taken to camps and then they'd you know be checked and vetted or whatever and then uh, they'd live in the camps for weeks slash months and then they'd return be able to return home once they'd been cleared and so you'd have this going on throughout the whole crisis where you'd have different like a kind of I don't know no people didn't stay in the camps for that long they stayed and then they went back um and so it worked really well. And so even though a, mo- a million people were displaced, there was always room for them because people were always going back as well and rebuilding it's quite fascinating. quickly. You don't, you never think about little logistical things like this yeah. when, you, when you listen to the news or you hear about these kind of things. It is, it is a, I mean, it's it's strangely clinical. In fact, the way it's all like yeah. planned out and stuff, you know. Yeah, and, and you don't get the you don't get the opportunity to to sort of plan things like this when it's like a tsunami or an earthquake or something like that. But with these kind of um, military operations, you can. Um, I think it was quite unique, to be honest, what was happening in Iraq. You, you know, they just knew that they were going to take Mosul back, and it was going to be, you know, a camp. It's going to take them however many months, but they would. Get so, there. what were your would you say were your greatest achievements that you know you personally on a personal level mm. i mean three three years in iraq's not not something you know well i would choose to do that's for sure <laughs> there's got to be a reason why you're there you know i know yeah yeah i suppose well i suppose when you when you get there and you start meeting people and you you sort of you become re- it becomes very personal to you as well and i kind of wanted to see it out i wanted to see this crisis to the end and in the end I did leave once you know I felt like this is moving on into more recovery work now and you know I am done I've been here and people don't actually yeah you're, you're right most people don't stay in Iraq that long there's a few people that stay long term but most people come for like between three months to a year but most people don't stay do too you much find 
um, you you met a lot of lost souls out there, as in the expats. Um, you know, I, I the few war photographers that I do know personally um, like spending time away and in those places, and it, it, it's a, often a reflection of their personality you know yeah well I think it does get a little I mean the cliche of it getting a little bit addictive you know that kind of drama and everything but also I think it's like this need not to like miss something not to be part of it you know you're not watching the news on a television you're like literally part of what's happening in the world and you're doing something and you're there and witnessing it and and I think everybody hopes that they can maybe have some sort of impact you know and it is quite hard to measure sometimes the impact that storytelling has you know other than sort of being a kind of I don't know you're you're getting things down in history you know you're making making notes for history for future generations you know maybe a warning or whatever that might be but it is quite hard there was one there was one particular story actually you asked me about personal impact uh, things that I'm proud of there was one uh, story that Claire actually mentioned in her presentation today um, about the the oil fires in Guyara. So, as I said before, Guyara was the first place that I sort of went to in the in the battle to retake Mosul, and it's sixty kilometers south of Mosul city, um, and it's a quite a big area, and it also has um, Guyara means uh, fields of tar, I believe, <laughs> and it literally is like you know you ta- you can tap the ground and there's like oil. Right. And so there's um, as ISIS retreated from Guyara town, just around the town, there's all these oil wells. And what they did is they taped IEDs or they put IEDs all around the oil well heads and then used snipers to blow the oil well heads up and essentially set ablaze 19 oil wells in the area, which then covered a 20 mile radius in thick black smoke. I mean, it was raining pellets of tar all day every day and it was like every surface was black and you'd go there and you at the end of the day you'd like brush your teeth and it was just black and it was horrible it was just such a health hazard and so we started going to Guyara to cover the story of people returning home right so they'd they'd been displaced been to the camp gone home and then there was this big health crisis happening like these people were living in this situation for like miles and we started to see this being like a huge problem and we were like how what can we do what what, like what can we do and I actually ended up doing a trip with I had um, a photographer called Joey L come out um I know the name he's he is a young guy who Mm -hmm. well he wasn't well known for that kind of work was he he was a kind of he's a portrait photographer and um yeah, like quite a well-known portrait photographer and yeah, he kind of made his name at quite a young age and he's a bit of a prodigy. That's right. I mean. And um, But he, I guess maybe not many people knew this then, maybe more people know now, but he also has, I don't actually remember how he first ended up in Kurdistan, but he, he has this big passion for Kurdistan and, and Iraq and he'd been many times. And actually what was interesting is I'd been talking to Joey about doing a trip. I can't remember where to now, but we were going to do a trip somewhere else before I ended up going to Iraq. And then I sort of emailed him and said, you know what, I'm in Iraq now. Like, and he said, well, you know, I was thinking of coming back to do my annual or biannual trip. So maybe we can work together in Iraq. So he came and we went to Guyara and 
he was like, I really want to get close to those fires. So we went to the fires and it was apocalyptic. It was insane. It was 10 o'clock in the morning and you had to use like a torch to see, to set up the equipment. It was just ridiculous. I've never, never experienced anything like it. And, um, we worked to cover, we captured some portraits of people that were living around there and the firefighters. I mean, it's insane. There's like 19 oil wells completely ablaze, tar, like flames in the air. Like you, I can't even really explain what it was like. And um, they had these like two fire trucks and men with a hose trying to get the water into the wellhead. Because you have to get the water right into the wellhead to put the fire out. But the problem was they couldn't get very close because one, there's like hot tar and fire everywhere. But two, there's all these IEDs that hadn't yet exploded. So it was like insane situation. Anyway, we, uh, Joey flew, we we got a drone and we, we captured all this footage and, and people had been covering the fires. Like it wasn't like we were the first to cover the fires. That's, you know, definitely can't claim that, but we're the first to like get a drone up there and, and see the scale of what was happening. And we then sent the footage to all like the networks basically. And that, it just went up everywhere. Like the BBC, CNN, Sky News, Al Jazeera. We, I was doing interviews for weeks about these fires. And, you know, we were also, out Oxfam was also like working with the Iraqi government, sort of putting pressure on, like something needs to happen. Like you, someone needs to come and put these fires out. If, if, if we don't have the capacity in Iraq to do that, can we get some help from somewhere else? And, and within weeks, the, the Iraqi government had um, appealed to the Qatari government. I think it's Qatar, and they sent over uh, Oku. Was it Qatar or Kuwait? Oh my gosh, I should remember that. But anyway, um, they, they had sent. Essentially, weeks later, they sent uh, help, and the fires were put out very quickly. So it's something that I know was. You know, I played a big part. I think you know, and big thanks to Joey. You know, who shot the the footage and took those images but we it's something I'm very proud of that we were able to like really put pressure on by telling that story and it's it's not something you can always see a result like quite such so tangibly and I remember when we went back and the firefighters were just like thank you so much like we saw it all over the news and like thank you and uh, yeah we we kept going back to check how it was going and they were like yeah they've sent help and it was was great it's great because I I have had the experience working with NGOs where a lot of the projects I was working on, I was watching rather bemused what was yeah. going on. And they were, I think the problem with a lot of NGOs is you have the um, emergency NGO stuff and then you have the development stuff or, you know, and the development stuff's a little bit gray, a gray area for me mm-hmm. when I look at what they're doing. And a lot of the ideas that I covered, even for Oxfam, funny mm-hmm. enough, I thought they seemed like someone back in the office had dreamt this idea up and thought it'd be a really good idea. But when you got out there, you're like, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. It is it's making no difference. You haven't thought it through because this has happened and now no one's using this thing because of X, Y, Z, you know. Yeah, it can be difficult. I mean, I guess these these contexts are really complicated and the issues are many and sometimes I think it can be very difficult with limited resources to like come up with the ideas that really have like a huge impact and like sometimes it takes a long long time to see results or and sometimes things don't work I mean that's you know it's that's how it is you know not everything is going to be like a miracle answer to these problems especially when 
the problems are so huge and like but 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 putting out putting out fires i mean there's a <laughs> yeah. there's a start middle and end to that isn't there you you know that 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 is seems like the kind of work that um ngos tend to do well at but then they're easier more tangible to understand aren't they yeah. i mean you yeah. know people malnourished people you know rebuilding things you know those very visual things are actually you know yeah and I guess it's why I think I've always been attracted to emergencies and working in in humanitarian situations because it's like the needs are dire but the uh, the the answers are very simple and it's it, it can be like you know right these people are displaced they need tents they need water they need this they need that and you can like see that impact very quickly um, and then, oh, they need to return home. They need help rebuilding their houses or having latrines built, whatever. Like, it, it, it is quite quick. And maybe I'm not a very patient person, have, but I do like that. Have you ever had to come up against the white saviour narrative? Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I like, think I do. But, I mean, have you ever had to deal with someone telling you you're being a white saviour? You know, I've I've heard... Yeah, I've never had anyone directly call me that no I haven't see you know like I do think that there has been a big movement um even in the in the sort of like 12 years 10 12 years that I've worked in the sector there's been a big movement to localize the work and and you know draw more on on uh, national staff and talent and I think that is really important to to sort of build that up but there are also situations where, like, for example, in Iraq with the most response, the way that it worked is that, yeah, we did fly in a humanitarian team to deal with what was going on. But then what we did is we built a team of local staff that we then that then carried on that work and we left. And that's, you know, still, then the, the percentage of international staff is much less later on. What do you think? I mean, the, the, the context in which I've heard it recently is in X so-and-so influencer going out to Africa I mean mm. and sort of like cradling young babies or whatever yeah. I don't know. like is that a problem I mean it presumably it's a problem in the media well I think that it can be a problem when it perpetuates a narrative that isn't sort of useful in terms of like how how countries or people are viewed and um I think we we as a as a sector want to move away from that narrative you know that these poor starving people can't do anything for themselves and need like you know people from the the west to go in and sort things out and i think we're we're all learning right and we I, th- I don't think that i don't think that people like you say influencers that do that or celebrities that do that or whoever does that i don't think that they're doing it with any malintent and i think so long as you know you kind of listen to what people are saying in response to it and absorb it and think like kind of reflect a bit on what you've done you know because that's a, i mean the, the the celebrity behind a project is is a real big thing it was for a yeah. while i remember abby used to cover celebs in all yeah. the time it was, it was all she ever did abby for was a, the celeb photographer yeah but she used to go on trips with everyone yeah yeah to, to like and all they were doing was walking around you know and highlighting an issue yeah and it, it and it is hugely beneficial and i think this is this is this is a this is an issue right in that well not maybe it's not an issue but it is kind of this is the celebrities do 
draw attention to a crisis. You know, for example, South Sudan, something, you know, terrible happening in South Sudan, conflict, people on the brink of starvation, disease, typhoid outbreaks, cholera, what have you, is there. No one really wants to pay attention to it. It's really hard to cut through in the media when there's all these things going on, as you know, like, there's so many stories every day that people care more about than what's necessarily happening somewhere like South Sudan, unfortunately. But then, you know, for example, when I was, I went there to South Sudan and then we kind of, I tag teamed with Abby actually, and she arrived with Kira Knightley. Now you bring someone like Kira Knightley to South Sudan and she, you know, meets people and tells those people stories back in but she's she's inherently annoying anyway. <laughs> the last person I would be inspired Actually, by. Actually, do you know what I? Um... <laughs> no, but it's like of all the people, Kira. But Knightley, you know, you, you you we you you kind of work with with people that appeal to the Who general most public. Famous. Yeah. yeah, and she was hugely she famous. Was at hugely the time. famous, and do you know what? She was very engaged. She came off the plane, and um, me and Kieran had been there for three and a half weeks, and we were like desperate to leave and they were like please stay please stay and brief Kira Knightley and me and Kieran were like oh god like just want to leave we were like I'd had Kieran camping in some rough places and like going on drives for 11 hours where he was complaining that maybe his spleen had separated and (laughs) I mean yeah you should ask him about it he'd be like oh god Amy like yeah where are we going now what are you gonna have me do now and he was like, please, I just want to leave. And I was like, oh, we have to just wait a few more days for Kira Knightley. Anyway, so we, she got, she'd got, you know, it's quite a long way to South Sudan. You've taken three flights or two flights and it's, it's not, you, you arrive and you're delirious a little bit, you know, especially if you're not used to it. You arrive in Juba, it's humid. It's basically like crazy airport. I mean, it's a tiny little hut essentially that stinks. It's full of people and it's chaos and you don't know what's going on. And I can imagine if you're not used to that kind of work, it's, Anyway, but she arrived straight off the plane and came to a briefing with me and Kieran because we had a flight to catch and we weren't missing it. And she was very engaged. She'd obviously done a lot of research and had a lot of like quite um, interesting questions for us, which I was very impressed by because I've definitely worked with people that aren't like that. And you kind of have to like tell them da, 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 da. da. And I thought it was very, I thought I was very impressed. Yeah. And the campaign was a success. Yeah, I mean, it raised money, and that's that's what it, that's what we aim to do with these crises: is raise money and raise awareness of what's going on. Um, and it, it works, and that's why that's why NGOs do it. These days, you're at the United uh, UNICEF. Yeah, I'm at UNICEF now. Yeah, yeah. I and moved. that was a move from Iraq to New York, which yeah. sounds like a. <laughs> Um, out the frying pan into the fire which do you prefer <gasps> good question I think I I maybe Iraq and <laughs> um, just in terms of living like and my lifestyle I I love New York I love New York and I really love my job and I you know have a brilliant life but there's just so I mean I've always been drawn to you know chaos and adventure and um rather than sort of luxury and that kind of living I mean don't get me wrong I really enjoy all the gorgeous restaurants and like being able to sort of live in such a nice place and I'm definitely making the most of it despite the pandemic um but yeah I I I did I just fell in love with Iraq I suppose and um I still think that I probably will go back to the field at some point 
for UNICEF? Maybe for UNICEF, yeah. I mean, I yeah, leaving Oxfam was a big deal for me, actually. Um, I'd been there 10 years and I kind of got to the point in Iraq where I was like, I think I'm done here. You know, I built up a team. The, the story had moved on. People had moved on. I was like, I don't want to be the last one left here. You don't want to be the last one left. So I was like, I need to leave. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I knew I needed a bit of a rest, actually. Um, so my plan was to take some time off and figure out what I wanted to do. Maybe set up a production company, actually. That was that was something I was thinking of. Film production? Yeah, like f- content production. Yeah. I thought it might be quite fun it to would. set up a... You'd be a good boss, I think. Oh, thanks. I've enjoyed working <laughs> with you. Everyone I know likes working with you. It, you would. You should still think about that, in fact, I think. Yeah, maybe I will. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like the idea. I just, I guess it's quite scary to leap off and like do something like that, but... Well, I mean, currently, possibly, you know, yeah, because, yeah. Of the, because of COVID. But you, as with all those things, um, the success of a lot of those ventures depend on who you know and how you whether you can generate the work. And you probably know. I mean, it's a small world, the NGO yes. world, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. I, I do think I could probably do it. Like I, I do. And well, I would you like... Do, you, yeah. you could definitely do it because <laughs> you've spent years thinking about creating content to sell mm. you know projects that, to, to generate money for for, for yeah. um, different NGO clients and that's basically what it involves I mean yeah. this is all it is really isn't it it's like can we create something that will make people give money so that we can spend that money on the people that we're filming exactly or, and I think a lot I think a lot of like production companies that I've worked with they don't have that insight into what the NGO is looking for they think they know but they haven't worked for an NGO so they like don't necessarily understand well, so oh, go on then currently how are NGOs most successful in in generating um eyes on their sort of projects or even just money because it's you know it's a funny old world we live in now you know like ads in newspapers probably no one cares about anymore it's more like social media snapchat tiktoks i don't know know. yeah i mean there's a lot of different ways to um fundraise and interestingly and surprisingly a lot of the traditional ways of fundraising are still the most effective um so like mail shots and cold calling and street uh chuggers as we call them in the uk you What's know that? Uh, like a, a person with a bucket on the street really yeah really yeah yeah mad isn't it and my job used to be when i was at oxfam to brief them so i'd come back from like a trip you know been to drought in mozambique or whatever and i'd come back and i'd go and do a session and brief them on the stories and inspire them to go out there on the streets and ask people for money and they used to say to me oh wow it's so amazing what you do and I was like no no guys like what yeah. you do is amazing I, I don't have the guts to stand on the street and ask people for money like what that's pretty that's pretty insane um but yeah those those methods still work but obviously we are we are now working I I've I've kind of moved away from you know when I left head office in um 2016 in Oxfam head office I moved away from that um being working closely with fundraisers and moved into more like media work with Oxfam in Iraq and providing content for the fundraisers back at head office and 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 you know like a big part of what we did as well was create content for for what we call major donors so big you know people that give big gifts and I remember that 
even I, I've got a feeling some of the films we produced mm. were were literally to just show to donors, large yeah. donors, weren't they? Yeah. So like I remember, for example, I went on a trip once to Bolivia, and it was this insane trip right in the middle of the jungle. We took we took three planes from London to get to. Santa Ana, I think it was, including this one little tiny plane. Then we had to take a four-hour boat ride down the Amazon River in the jungle, and there was like not even a radio signal where we were going to this tiny little community on the banks of this river. And uh, this one major donor had been um, had had essentially funded the construction of six hundred houses on stilts along for all the communities living along this riverbank. Um, and we went to document the construction of the first house. And my job was to go there and document this. One, to tell the story of this incredible work and these people living in the Amazon who were like affected by floods, etc. But also to go back and show him where his you know, money had been spent because he was donating large sums of money. Do these guys have a personal interest in this stuff, do you reckon? Or is it just like, you know, rich people, here's a bunch of money do a good thing kind of thing. I mean I guess there's you know both both but this guy particularly um he his wife was from South America and they funded specifically projects in South America so we would you know Oxfam would have like a portfolio of projects that needed funding and um you would kind of the team that would pitch these would know what their interests were and would pitch pitch particular stories and projects and then um you know, they would pick what they wanted to fund. Um, okay. I'm conscious of time here. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm also talking a lot. Of, of how dark it's, it's getting in here. It's dark. I, I, I think I better turn the <laughs> yeah, lights okay. on. It won't be a second. <laughs> Sitting in the dark. Oh, that's better. Yeah, I should um, I should mention we, we are sat in, a, sat in a hotel in Sharjah in the UAE currently. <laughs> Um, but um, yeah, it was it's just getting dark, and we were almost in <laughs> pitch black. Um, so, your job now, yeah, it, it's it's it sounded very interesting, and it also sounds slightly intangible to me because you know, it it I don't even know most of the jobs that you know those kind of jobs. I have a very small idea about what they even are and how they work. And mm. so, I mean, describe what you do now at the, the, the uh, UNICEF. So I recently moved. So when I left, okay, so when I left at Oxfam, I was going to take some time off, but then a job, an incredible job came up at UNICEF that I applied for. And to my astonishment, I got the job and they were like, we need you in uh, New York in January. So I basically only had a couple of months off and then like was back to work and was moving to New York, which was quite a whirlwind. And I went to work for them as a video producer in the social media team. Um, and they have quite a large social media team. And, it, you know, the, the production is on another level compared to compared to Oxfam. They're producing a lot more content. Um, so I did that for a year and a half. And now I've moved over into a new role, um, a new role for me as the um, digital partnership lead for UNICEF Global, which essentially is kind of like overseeing the rollout of um, our digital partnerships, such as uh, with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. So so you're basically someone at UNICEF who is the bridge between a so all the social media companies and UNICEF. Yeah, so on a day-to-day -day basis, I manage that relationship. Uh, and it's not just an ad relationship, is it? It's like... 
they they want you to do things you want them to do things it's kind of like working out a middle ground where everyone's happy yeah so these digital platforms have what they call social good teams and their teams work with like us or the WHO or even Oxfam and you know NGOs to do good on their platforms and they support us and our work and I suppose that you know obviously it's good for them as well to be working with with us um but it's you know and I'm cognizant that there's probably and non-disclosure agreements yeah. and stuff that <laughs> like, you signed. What are you going to ask me? Here? Well, no, I'm. I, I mean, we talked <laughs> no, off no. the record yesterday yeah, yeah. about the predicament that social media platforms find themselves in now, where they want to be good, mm. they want to do good, but they want to be free and open, and they don't want to sort of censor people. But they're end. Mm. They're ending up creating algorithms that are censoring people and they're banning people and they're you know and not in my opinion that dangerous people the Mm. kind of people that are getting deplatformed and stuff now and you know what's your view on all that well it's a very interesting time to work in social media and um it was never my plan to work in social media but I find it absolutely endlessly fascinating and and quite exciting really to see what's possible but also like none of us really know where this is going and how it's going to work um and yeah for example like a big part of the work that we're doing with Facebook is to support they're supporting UNICEF's work around COVID and um trying to reach as many people as possible with information about you know how to stay safe and um and then also working with them on on projects to do with uh, insights around vaccines so vaccine confidence big part of UNICEF's work is in vaccine distribution and vaccine building vaccine confidence and even before COVID we're working on on this and so they they think like the anti-vax communities you know causing a problem therefore we fund people who are you know helping the vaccination program yeah I mean they definitely believe in in, in vaccines and in in supporting that work with WHO and UNICEF um, and helping us to reach as many people as possible, building vaccine confidence and, and you know, like looking at different markets, like working in lots of different countries to look at the, the kind of vaccine hesitancy, what's driving it and what kind of uh, content uh, works to increase vaccine confidence. How do you find the different personalities of the social networks and the people that work there and stuff is it is it can you tell you know there are different groups that work in different places because online like facebook's for stories you know, yeah twitter's for like opinions isn't it you know like um i don't know t- yeah they are know? quite unique i suppose um i think you know like the people that i interact with are all just yeah they're all honestly very nice people very genuinely interested and supportive of our work like honestly they're you know really great I love working with them and it's um it's really interesting for me I really enjoy it because I love talking to people that don't work in this sector I find you know sometimes you can kind of get into a bit of a um how what would you say like a I don't know rabbit hole of like just being around people like you know especially journalists and then NGO workers and you all know and understand this this context these contexts and like what it is to work in humanitarian situations or would you say the majority of the people you work with at say Facebook and Twitter or whatever 
don't have a clue what it's like to... Yeah, to they've do. never been anywhere like Iraq or never, you know, not done things like that. So it, I really enjoy, like, when I have the opportunity to talk to them about the work that, you know, organisations like UNICEF or Oxfam do and the work that I've done when I've been in the field. And, and I think that I... I hope that I bring something to that role because I'm able to understand how that work that's being developed at head office level, how that will work for the teams on the ground and, and sort of being that bridge between those teams on the ground and, and operationalizing, um, you know, these things that are being put into partnership agreements. And So it's not about commissioning particular things for these networks no. or you don't work no. in that anymore? No, I've like really m- moved into something completely different now. And although so do you think were... you'll have an effect on them? Because like, you know, it's a bit of a joke about, you know, amongst myself and a few of my mates, but mm. they are our digital overlords. <laughs> like, yeah, they, I guess so. They are, you know, <laughs> if you go on Clubhouse and listen to these guys speak, they're mm. very sure about what they know and this is the good for everyone and this mm. is, you know, and... And as we now know, they are the most powerful social engineering sort of projects on the planet. And you can you can see that. And now, you know, they're noticing this, obviously, because yeah. it's now in the it's now in the mainstream media that, you know, fake news is a real thing or whatever mm-hmm. and, and you know we you know so so Well to some communities, some in some countries, Facebook is the internet. They open their phones and it's already on their phone and it is the internet. So yeah, they they have a tremendous amount of power. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a very small cog in this wheel and I, I kind of hope that I will be able to have some sort of impact on that. I think it's I, th- I hope that my experience can bring something to the to, to what we're doing and I I think that some well I I definitely think that the the projects that I'm working on I believe in and think are you know really um, important and what are they like what's your what's your favorite project probably the va- the vaccine stuff like I find it really interesting um it's it's we're we're about to roll out this this big program working in 50 countries to analyze data and uh, creative like insights insights on creative to work out what is effective in terms of talking to people about vaccines and and why like understanding why people aren't like are hesitant um and then also working out how we can communicate with them to build confidence i'm i'm personally i'm hesitant i mean i know i'm in a situation where I probably it doesn't matter that I'm hesitant, mm. but but I would not get a vaccine unless I needed to. Yeah, and I not, think a lot of people health, are like not that. for health reasons. I mean, if I had to travel. Yeah, but, and yeah, I agree. I actually, I yeah, I understand that perspective. Like, I think you. Know, but I know a lot of people who are like that. Yeah, and. Um, and you and I have probably had a lot of vaccines. I've I know that's the weird thing. Literally had everything. <laughs> that's, yeah, but that's the weird thing because. Yeah. Um, I suppose I, a part of that opinion is based upon the fact that, well, this is a, a rushed through vaccine. But who am I to say that? This is These are like thousands of professionals designing yeah. vaccines, isn't it? So it's probably wrong. But I'm still thinking it and I'm I'm relatively like open minded. So Well, know. yeah. And I, this is the curious thing about um, vaccine hesitancy is that 
um you know a lot of the anti-vax movement is actually in countries well I, a lot of a lot of issues can be you know the the logical answer to an issue is education but actually what's well, really interesting well yeah exactly so <laughs> i'm still <laughs> well this is what i was going to say is like so with this with the va- with vaccine hesitancy and and uh, anti-vax movement is very much um in countries where that isn't an issue education is not the issue information is not the issue so how do you so what's the well, what's the issue well this is what we're trying to work out and and it, it is very context dependent so like each it, it it is unique to each each country what why people are not are not wanting to get it vaccines. might even just be needles needles in your arm I mean, that's, yeah. it, it does hurt it's like yeah. i'm against someone hurting me oh you know yeah, but I, yeah. I mean, I, it's um, this is this is why I feel like I'm really I'm very interested in this work at the moment because. So would they take something like that into account? So you know what I'm saying here. Mm. You know, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a critical thinker. You know, yeah. like maybe a bit heterodox sometimes, but I am critical, and I'm not rushing out to get a vaccine, mm. and actually would go out of my way not to unless I did because I. According to me, at least, I've looked at the statistics mm-hmm. of, say, COVID and realized that I, I stand almost zero chance of, you know, having dying of yeah. COVID. So, yeah. um, therefore, why would I get a vaccine, mm-hmm. especially if, um, you know, immunity is occurring? Well, I suppose the answer is really that... Um, the reason you would get it is to save the lives of other people to increase herd immunity because if if we don't if you don't have enough people with immunity then the disease can still spread and it spreads to people that that will then die yeah and it, and it, and the problem is yeah you could say like okay you could vaccinate just those people but the problem is the if the if the virus is still spreading then it will mutate and then you know it means that you end up having to have a new vaccine all the time for the people that are vulnerable right so so, so so you, getting rid of it initially stops it the, from mutating ah, and right. can eliminate the well, virus that's a good, altogether. Well, there you go. That's a good. Uh, yeah. That's a good angle already because that makes because I would definitely say, well, look, you know, why not let everyone like me, you, and you've had COVID. I've had you? COVID. Yeah. 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 <laughs> why Why don't you let us get, um, you know, yeah, herd immunity, and then we? That's how we protect. I find that narrative of. You know, oh, granny killer! If you don't want to do this X, Y, Z, I find that a bit insidious. Yeah, I mean, I th- I feel like most people find negative narratives quite um, confronting, and and it actually just kind of makes you not want to do something yeah. even more. It's like well, it's like the whole environmental movement. It's like yeah, don't do this rather yeah. than do, do this. this. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So as as we've seen recently, there are new now already new variants of COVID and this will keep happening as long as it can live essentially so once you have herd immunity it cannot it doesn't have hosts anymore so it, it dies off essentially and we can have it? eradicated diseases before i don't ask me which ones please mm-hmm. <laughs> but we, the diseases um viruses have been eradicated before diseases um by herd immunity through herd immunity and um and it, 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 either through everybody catching it and it not mutating or but it's through vaccines. Herd immunity happens through vaccines. I think you need like over 70% of the population to be immune. Um, yeah. Wow. So vaccines are effective. Well, yeah, <laughs> we know vaccines are effective. We also know this, is, and this is where the problem is, is, I think. We also know that vaccines do sometimes cause complications, mm. all the, albeit um, 
if you you know if you measure the data mm. it's a it's a very small chance of you having an adverse effect but you, but people do and i often find that when people talk about vaccines they don't even mention that they don't they don't give people the chance to acknowledge that yeah sometimes it does happen mm-hmm. but hardly ever hardly and this ever, is how yes. I, and this is yeah. yeah and and but when you when people are all you know when people are just in your face vaccines i think it does put people off the mistakes they make in trying to persuade people is to not be brutally honest Mm -hmm. because then you've got something to fight against then i've got you know like ah yeah but you didn't mention this that and the other and and if you take away that i think if you take away that ability to you know if you if you try and announce everything and say what we're trying to do because i felt this was this it was the same with the way the the political way that the covid was dealt with Mm. it no one was like for example in America, you, um, the, I think the WHO said um, masks are ineffective to begin with. Mm-hmm. And the reason they did it was because they didn't want people to use masks because they wanted people the at hospitals. Care, yes. Right. Now, what a ridiculous way to do that. Why didn't they say, hey, look, um, you know, we need all the masks, really, because there's people that need masks. So, you know, take one, take, take one for the team and let us have them. You know, maybe they they realized that yeah, and everyone would just rush out and try and buy them. But they did anyway. But what they did by lying to get what they wanted was now, and this is a very common experience for me. I don't know what's true. I mean, even when I go online now and try and work something out, it's like, you know, I'm cross pollinating all these different sources, and I still don't know what. Yeah, what the well, truth is. I think I. I mean, I. I. My personal opinion on it all is that you know. I guess it's the first time the world has dealt with a global pandemic on this scale. And I guess, you know... The, you mean the whole world together, do yeah, you? Yeah, the whole world together, sorry, yeah. And and so it's quite a unique situation. And, you know, like I said earlier about, you know, NGOs work on the ground, you don't always get everything right, I mm. suppose. And you don't always... If you've not dealt with something before, it's quite hard, perhaps, to, to make the right decision every time and may and and also dealing with this in an era where social media is so prevalent and information is so accessible and also as you mentioned earlier fake news is 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 out there as well and like no one knows what is fake and what's real and what to believe and what not to believe and the people producing fake news say that the real news is fake and people producing Mm. mainstream media news are saying oh no that's fake news and nobody knows what to believe anymore and we're all in a we're in this crisis right now yeah and you and i both know because i think even when i first started in the in in the media there were trusted sources and on mm-hmm. the whole they were pretty trusted even though I, I i know even some of the very high profile journalists i worked with were bullshitting as well you know like it, it happens and it annoys me that we do that as a people as a species because mm. once you get caught once it's everything then gets in goes into question and i find that's what's happened now mm. and you know, like if because of Facebook and anyone can publish whatever they want there, mm-hmm. there is no, you know, not there is there is no way of verifying anything anymore. No. I mean, and like it used to be that the WHO, say as an institution, were trustworthy, and now you can see they used they've used um, you know lies in order to perpetuate something. It was a means to an end thing. And I think it's a. I think it's. I think they're sh- everyone's shooting themselves in the foot here. 
because I think what people actually really appreciate is just honesty. Really. I mean, I, I can't believe yeah. people aren't doing it. I can't believe people are... Well, the are... problem is you can't... There are people being honest, but there are also... No, but institutions. Oh, yeah. I see, right. Because yeah. they're the powerful ones. I mean, you know, the WHO is is is, is how everyone's justifying all these particular policies mm. and stuff. And it would just be so much nicer, and, and I would trust them a lot more if they were open about what they were doing. Or even, you know, I mean, I, I think I understand why they're doing it, but I don't think it has. It's a long-term strategy that will, that, unless they really are trying to create misinformation and confusion. No, I, I mean, I don't think they are. I personally, don't think that that's that's what. There's no malintent there. I don't believe. Right. Um, so, like for example, um, in um, even even when I was driving to the uh, to the airport to come come away on this trip, when you start getting to the Welsh border mm. on the motorway, all these flashing signs saying mm. "turn back," "border control." You know, and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. what? You know, and I actually did think to myself, maybe I'll turn back, you know. That's mad. But then you get to the border, there's nothing there at all. And yeah, it's actually just yeah. a bridge, you know, like, you know, over the... But but the point is, 60 or 70% of people turned back. Mm. And that's a policy. Mm. So it, it kind of works. It's like, but and but but it doesn't help you to trust the sign in the future. You know, no, because you know you can just drive straight through. Yeah, right. Oh, well, I know that now because yeah. I went. Of course, I had to. But, yeah. but, but, but I think you know what are we unless we are trust a trustworthy source? And mm. I think it would. It's just and politicians are the worst at this because they can't admit when they're wrong and backtrack. And the the first time a politician actually says, "Do you know what? I was so wrong, but I'm going to make this right, and we're going to do this," then I trust that guy. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, like. It's a, it's a funny world we live in. I really do. I yeah, don't... I mean, it is definitely an interesting time with the pandemic and then with the kind of like era of fake news and, and like misinformation. It is like a very strange time that we find ourselves in. Are you in. in a positive mood about it? I mean, you're working closely with Facebook and Twitter, which are essentially the news. I mean, Twitter is my news source. Yeah, I mean, I do feel positive about it, actually. I do. I think that... Um, for all the all the criticism that you can level at at them, I think that they are trying to sort it out. They're trying to do something about it. They're trying to figure out how to move this forward in a positive way. Um, I don't think that they ever thought that we would be in the situation that we're in right now. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I always feel positive about the world. I think I couldn't have done my job for this many years if I didn't, to be honest, because I've seen sort of the worst of humanity in so many, so many places. Um, but I, in the end, I do think that good prevails and that things do sort of work out in the end. You know, we go through hard times, but we always sort of find a way to muddle through and come out the other end and, and hopefully do better, like going forwards. How do you find living in New York as a Brit then? Or how do you find the American culture? Mind you, New York culture and American culture. New York's a bit of a bubble. It's very different from other places that I've been to in America. But I do like New York. I lo Actually, it's quite fun being a Brit in New York because um, New Yorkers and Americans generally like absolutely love Brits. Like, every, you know, two beers in, guaranteed they're trying to do a British accent and sound. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you basing that on? And like, Harry Potter every time. I'm like, oh, my God. It's <laughs> It's quite terrible. I've yet to hear a good one, but <laughs> it's very funny. And I don't know, everyone's very 
I've got a really great group of friends, like really fantastic Americans. group of friends. Yeah. Actually, when I moved to New York, Joey L, that I worked with on the fires mm. in Iraq, was my only, the only person I knew in New York. And I moved into an apartment like two streets over from him, but he's been in Ethiopia since I moved there. So, but I'm friends, now really good friends with uh, his friend, like his best friend. And we've built like, I've got like a group of friends we all hang out and, everyone's just so nice it feels like home already you know two years in and I feel very very happy there to be honest um well when was the last time I saw you it was like oh, years ago when I was still at Oxfam yeah yeah it would be years ago because I've been you know I yeah I've, I've been in Berlin I've been you know all that time mm. at the BBC I was away all that time it's a funny old world I mean it it's it, it is interesting though that interesting that we find ourselves back here well no not because um, I think, you know, there are people that you kind of, like, if I look back at that time, you know, we've worked through all the same kind of situations. Yeah. And I think you do notice who those other people are that kind of a little bit like you, mm. that kind of like end up doing X, Y, Z and living in strange parts of the world. And then, you know, it's, it is, it's, that is like the travelers network well, you, you, who you all have what? slightly different jobs but but they're all they 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 the unifying thing is the travel and the actual wanting to be in a strange place and in my case in your case i think to want to do good to want to sort of add something to the party yeah and 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 have you know and help i, I you know i've always enjoyed helping you know and um and for some reason you can mix that with the travel, which is amazing when you think about it. Yeah, it's incredible. It's really incredible. And I think I think for me, some of my best friends, like I, I get, people laugh at me, they're like, oh, are all your friends photographers? And I'm like, well, actually, yeah, a lot of them are. And the reason is because when you're on these in these strange places with people for like even just a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, you form a very strong bond. You, you like go through like all kinds of crazy things with these people that you don't know. And you've really just got each other to get through it. And it's like sink or swim, to be honest. And so you usually end up swimming and afterwards you kind of you are close you know you still I'm still in touch with nearly everyone that I've worked with on trips and um meet up you know bump into them meet people and even being here and meeting you know like meeting other photographers that I've not met before but that I've not worked with but you sort of end up very quickly forming like feeling comfortable with and can chat to because you've all been through similar experiences well I think it's also a personality type Mm. I think um, I think one thing that most of us are good at is working under pressure. Yeah. Like yeah. I worry, I often worry about things in daily life, but if an emergency situation arises, I'm very calm. Me too. Instantly. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I think it's a common thing amongst people that like um, travel, cause, especially because you, you kind of have to have faith. Yeah, in, that's it, in, yeah. In, in, you, you go to places constantly not knowing where, who's there or what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. You land yeah. and you're like, oh, God, anything could happen. Yeah, and even even how you get a taxi. Like, In fact, when I used to travel before social media, we used to arrive in countries and not know anything at all. We well, didn't know where we were going to live, where we were going to stay. Nothing. We, you'd just get off the plane. Yeah. And then you'd work it out stage by stage. Well, do you yeah. remember when we landed in Karachi, actually? Our car wasn't there to pick us up. And we were, like, in Karachi. And we were like, well, 
we don't know where we're staying. It was I the middle of the know. night. It was the middle of the night. It was like three, four in the morning. We landed in Karachi Airport. We knew we weren't, we were supposed to be out, in, out of there quick because, you know, it's not that safe. And we didn't know where our hotel was. Oh, shit, yes. And so what... We got a car to take us to our actual hotel and it was a we weird... No, we just booked up. We just literally went to a random hotel, didn't we, I think? I, I don't I know. I just remember Man, that the I car wasn't there. The car wasn't there and we had to just get, get ourselves... We just knew we had to get out of the airport because we didn't, we didn't have, like, internet or anything like that. It was like we had one of those, like... I remember I used to travel with a Nokia, like... Not a 3310, but maybe something like that. And you'd get this Nokia. And then when the plan was when you arrive, you get given a SIM card to put in it. Mad, isn't it? To think well, that I mean, now. I, well, it, dude, you think that's mad. <laughs> we, you know, in the 80s and 90s, um, before any electronic things, yeah. we used to use Post Restaurant to communicate with people. I don't even know what that is. Post Restaurant <laughs> is when you send a, po- if you want to contact, say you're living in Singapore and yeah. I'm, I'm living in Kenya or something, and I want to send contact you, I send a letter to Amy Christian, mm. Post Restaurant, Singapore, and it and they keep it in a box in the in the post office. Oh, wow. And, and when you, every every month you check the box to see if anyone sent you anything. <laughs> and that's how we used to communicate with all our friends. And we used to organize ourselves, like every when I was in Southeast Asia, every Christmas, a big group of us all used to meet at Christmas somewhere. I think it was Copangang one year and then, you know, all these places. And we did it all by post restaurant. So you had to think way in advance. You had to write a letter to someone and expect them to get it and then turn up in a place expecting them to be there. <laughs> and like everyone used to appear. It's a lot of faith in that. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I like that and I have faith in people. I, yeah. I absolutely do have faith in people. And yeah. and it, it, it serves you, I think it serves you well in, yeah. in general, you know. Well, I think it's a good thing, isn't it, to have faith and have hope and just, you know, yeah, believe that things are going to work out. Correct. And I I think that's a great place to leave it. I think things will work out okay. Um, I'm sure they will. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for chatting, Amy. It's been really good thanks catching up. Thanks for having up. me. It has been good, yeah. yeah. And um, maybe I'll see you, well, who knows when, how we're going to be traveling in the future. Yeah. But uh, we will be travelling again, I'm sure. Definitely. Mm-hmm.